0: Hello and welcome to Beyond Markets by Julius Baer, a series featuring conversations with experts to share recent market developments, key insights, and strategic inputs from around the globe.
1: Hello and welcome to this special Next Generation episode of the Julius Baer Beyond Markets podcast. In the wake of the global financial crisis of 2008, we were all expecting significant disruption to the financial industry fintechs were the new kids on the block and poised to take over. But over a decade later, the reality is somewhat different. I'm joined today by Karsten Minker, head of Next Generation Research here at Julius Baer, to discuss why disrupting the financial industry has been harder than thought and what we can expect going forward. Carsten, thank you for joining us. So, what happened? Why have those predictions of significant disruption not materialised?
2: Well, I think, first of all, This is because the established companies in the financial industry are what they are, established. Of course, as we all are well aware of, this in itself is not the secret source of success. That said, being in the industry for very long and having long lasting client relationships is a big advantage as clients typically do not switch banks very easily. The same applies to insurances.
1: Why is that?
2: First and foremost, it's because the products and services in banking or in the financial world are very similar. Furthermore, switching the bank or the insurance always entails cost. It takes time and ultimately there is no guarantee that the new bank or the new insurance is better than the old one. Secondly, there are quite high barriers to entry. So setting up a new bank or a new insurance company is anything but easy. There are, these are highly regulated industries, which means that any newcomer must first master the rules of the regulatory game. Using banks as an example, there are reserve requirements, there is anti-money laundering, you need to know your client, etc. And thirdly, um, the financial services industry is not a high growth industry, at least not here in Europe or in the United States. So anyone who is entering the industry is immediately exposed to a very, very high degree of competition. Or put simply, the cake is not growing anymore. And if you want to have a piece of the cake, if you want to have a pie, you just need to steal it from somebody else. So this is very high degree of competition means that margins are rather small, which in itself makes it more difficult to disrupt the established structures.
1: Now, all of this is not to say that there aren't any threats from fintech and decentralized finance. Um, But it is fair to say that many, and of course, not all of them, of those services are filling in areas that are currently underserved by conventional banking, rather than encroaching on bigger players. Is that right?
2: Yes, to a certain degree. So if we take fintech first, um, which, by the way, is quite a vast field, Um, (laughs) there has been innovation during the past few years. No doubt about that. Um, If we take buy now, pay later or BNPL as an example. And I'm sure most of us have used it at some point. So this is a new form of consumer credit, very easy to use, because it has been made integral to online shopping. It didn't exist before, firstly, because, um, well, online shopping didn't really exist prior to uh, the 2010s. And second, well, banks simply missed it. Um, In my view, it would have been very, very easy for retail banks to come up with their own BNPL solutions right from the start.
1: Mm -hmm. Interesting. And and what about decentralized finance?
2: Well, decentralized finance or DeFi, um, I think, firstly, we need to acknowledge that this is completely happening outside of traditional finance or TradFi. Um, This is because DeFi for the moment is all about cryptos, an area which by design is disconnected from the financial industry. Thus far, DeFi has been totally independent because it only centers around crypto. But we think that DeFi will ultimately converge with TradFi, not least because of the 2022 crypto crisis, uh, which has demonstrated that the world of cryptos is not without its challenges either.
1: Now, what about neobanks? Uh, how do these online-only banking services fit into this new financial picture?
2: I think the main reason why neobanks started to emerge in the first place is that many established banks were busy sorting out their own problems after the financial crisis. So there was a bit of a void, there was lack of profitability, and all this led to the fact that they partly missed the digital disruption, which was happening in many areas of our daily lives. Very simple. The value proposition of neobanks is that they can provide the same services as established banks, but more conveniently and also more cheaply. This is mainly because they operate online only. So there is no network of branches that needs to be maintained. For example, they also benefit from the fact that they are able to start with a clean sheet, i.e., they use state-of-the-art IT systems instead of upgrading legacy ones. So for basic banking services, we believe neobanks have a position, a current account plus a card, for example, yet when the services are becoming more sophisticated, think about investment advisory, think about um, portfolio management or wealth planning, the picture already looks different because here the services are much, much less standardized.
1: But we're seeing consumers increasingly turn to online services. Mm -hmm. So do you think that will mean the neobanks are able to edge ahead of incumbent providers? For simple services,
2: at least. Yes, but it depends on um, the region we are looking at. Because I think here in Europe and also in the United States, we can say that uh, the markets are basically overbanked. So it is very tough for neobanks to actually gain ground. Simply speaking, there is no big benefit when it comes to changing the bank you're having a checking account with. Neobanks need to actively attract new clients offering lower fees, higher interest rate on deposits, or lower interest rate on loans. And the problem with that strategy is it's not very profitable. So according to a recent study from a consultancy, neobanks have a revenue of 30 US dollars per year per client, which is not a Louder. lot, it's very low indeed. <laughs> yeah. um, in other parts of the world, the picture is different. So uh, Asia, for example, and Africa, because these markets are so-called underbanked markets, meaning that the competition for banking services is much lower. The big benefit of the neobanks here is that their clients need only a smartphone and an internet connection, so there is no desire for a branch at all. Plus, the population is very young, uh, it's very tech-savvy, and it's very used to just organize their lives uh, in their smartphones or with the help of their smartphones. So so there's the super app, and if a neobank is able to tie into that super app, it makes it very easy in terms of gaining new clients.
1: Now, we're talking about a tech-savvy generation Mm. using apps and using their phones. Um, Whereas neobanks can only provide a fairly basic service, is this where robo-advisors come in? So we've seen that robo-advisors have an annual growth rate of around 30%. uh, And that's roughly 350 billion US dollars assets under management in 2022. Um, So they're definitely making inroads. But how big are those inroads? And should conventional wealth managers be wary?
2: Mm. Um, I think those numbers, they do sound impressive. Um, I fully agree on that. But we need to put it into perspective in the sense that these 350 billion US dollars, they only account for 0.3% of all advisory assets in the United States. Mm-hmm. So robo-advisors, despite this stellar growth and this, despite their high-flying aspirations, they remain a niche for now and not really a threat to the established asset management industry. Looking further into the future, we believe robots will be complementary to the asset management industry, not in competition with it. This is mainly because they are allowing investors with smaller budgets to put together a well diversified and well managed portfolio, including proper risk management. Thus, they help investors to overcome some of the biases uh, that they are often facing. So holding on to loss making positions for too long, Hoping that they will eventually recover, or also holding portfolios which are not very well diversified.
1: So that's the whole emotional problems that we always
2: absolutely, exact. absolutely.
1: Um, but one thing I wanted to ask you there is: we've obviously seen a lot of recent improvements in AI, and there's a lot of conversation around there. Do you think that might catapult robo advisors further into
2: the mainstream? That is the big, big question. Um, at the moment, I would lean rather to a no than a yes Uh, because today looking at robo advisors they sound much more sophisticated than they are the way the portfolios are built is not any different from what a human portfolio manager does with the key input factors being questions about the investor's time horizon financial background willingness and ability to take risk with today's status quo we are very far from a sophisticated AI robot advisor Uh, to make this vision a reality. I think sizable investments would be required without a guarantee of success. And the fact of the matter is that the ambition of today's robo advisors is to provide a well diversified portfolio, which allows investors to generate returns that are in line with the market, no matter if it's equities, bonds, commodities, or whatever. So, these sizable investments you would need to build an AI-based robo-advisor, they would need to generate returns that are systematically above those of the market. And we know that outperformance and underperformance are always a zero-sum game. So the gain or the outperformance of one manager is the loss or the underperformance of the other, which at the end of the day means if we only had robo-advisors, by definition, some of them must outperform and others must underperform. So I think conceptually it is not possible that AI-based robots constantly outperform the market, which raises the question if somebody is actually willing to commit the required investments to develop them.
1: But then will AI more broadly change the wealth management industry? Can we see that push
2: in a different direction? Certainly. Our take on AI is the following. It is a general-purpose technology, which means that it is applied across a number of industries, including wealth management or the financial industry more broadly. While AI has made a lot of progress during the past few years, and particularly this year, we still see it as a tool that will make our lives easier, that will make us more efficient performing the tasks we are doing today. So AI will not replace us anytime soon. In particular for wealth management, we believe that AI will be used at various steps of the investment management process, to support research analysts, to support investment advisors and portfolio managers in their daily work. It will also be used for much simpler tasks, such as summarizing reports or translating them, freeing up capacities, which can be used for more value-creating tasks.
1: Hopefully, large swathes of the industry will be sighing a sigh of relief (laughs) and that their jobs are still safe. Um, But I'd like to talk to you now about payments. Uh, So we we touched upon it briefly earlier. um, And unlike the majority of the financial services, payments really have evolved hugely in the last decade. We've gone from using cash most of the time to pay, to paying with our phones or Mm -hmm. even paying with our watches. Um, And now obviously the pandemic sped up the adoption here of digital payments. But how have we moved quite so quickly from cash to digital, especially when other areas are lagging on Mm -hmm. the innovation front?
2: I think this is about just one word, convenience. It is king. <laughs> now, now, so more and more people are realizing that paying cashless is much more convenient than getting the cash out of your wallet, counting the notes and coins, and then handing over, handing them over to the cashier. And by now cashless payments are three times faster than cash-based payments. And as you say, the pandemic has sped up this process primarily from a health perspective back then, if we remember. But this, as of today, has, of course, taken a backseat. So those that changed their payment preferences during the pandemic, they are not changing them back, and I think it's as simple as that. That said, um, the trend towards cashless payments is progressing at different speeds in different parts of the world. Take the US and Europe as an example. Americans, on average, use their cards 1.5 times a day compared to only 0.4 times for Europeans. And within Europe, there are huge differences. On the one side of the spectrum, we have cashless countries such as Sweden and other Nordics, where people are much more ready to dump cash. On the other side, you have Germany, you have Austria, which are two countries where cash is still king. And to me, these kind of cultural differences uh, are said to persist. And this also means that the concept of a cashless economy is still a very distant one.
1: Uh, but beyond convenience, uh, where do you see digital payments when we're looking at structural growth stories?
2: There are two main structural trends which foster the use of cashless payments, i.e. cards. So the first one is e-commerce. The global share of e-commerce reached around 19% last year, up from 12% five years ago. Uh, countries leading include China, the UK and the US, where 37 27 and 20% of all retail sales are done online. The structural growth of e commerce is set to continue. Uh, it's expanding into underpenetrated geographies such as Latin America, South and Eastern Europe, and into new segments such as food or pharmaceuticals, which should translate into rising card payment volumes. And the second trend is uh, international travel. Um, as of today, this accounts for more than a quarter of all card network revenues, making it very significant. Most people likely think of their plane tickets now, which they almost always pay by cart. But this also includes the hotel, the rental car, the restaurant, etc. And why is the travel trend set to continue? Uh, again, two reasons. Firstly, it's because people like to see the world and explore foreign countries and cultures. Secondly, uh, people are getting more prosperous, which allows them or enables them to travel.
1: Yes, but those credit card fees really can catch you out when you've been a for
2: yes. No, you have to watch out about the fees, certainly. Yeah.
1: So let's stick with e-commerce for a moment. Uh, one of the innovations we've seen, and, and you mentioned it earlier, mm-hmm. is buy now, pay later. So we, most of us, I think, know Klarna, yeah. uh, but there are obviously similar companies um, when checking out in our preferred shops. Now, what does BNPL do for us when we're, when we're shopping? How does it change the way we shop?
2: Simply speaking, from the perspective of the merchant, BNPL increases the conversion rate, so the share of items that are not only placed into the shopping cart, but also ordered. Um, And according to studies, consumers using BNPL are not only up to three times more likely to complete a purchase, but also typically shop more. Luggage company Samsonite is a case in point. After adding BNPL in 2020, the company saw a 25% increase in average order volumes. From the perspective of the merchant, it's...
1: A great thing. <laughs>
2: it's a great thing. Just to explain, so the benefit of, of Buy Now, Pay Later, as the name suggests, is that we don't have to pay for our purchases right away. Uh, we can split it into smaller interest rate-free installments, which we will repay over time. And the typical structure divides a 50 dollars or $100,000 uh, purchase into four equal installments starting with a down payment due at checkout and the next three payments due at two week intervals over six weeks. So buy now pay later is it's one of the simplest forms of consumer credit, which has ever been offered. And well, it does not require any complicated credit checks, which makes it so simple. And the downside speaking from the perspective of the consumer is that people tend to spend much more money or at least more money than uh, what they have thus far. We have not heard about any major defaults because the economic environment has been very benign. So we had solid wage growth, uh, the labor market has been very strong, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but let's see how BNPL companies fare in times when the economy is less uh, good than today.
1: So, how big is the BNPL space, and how do the companies in this space actually make money if consumers are essentially getting an interest free loan?
2: No, there's no magic involved. <laughs> unfortunately, uh, but in terms of the market size, it's very small. So it makes up less than 5% of all e-commerce transactions globally. Um, still, regional differences are quite stark and they very much depend on the presence of local companies. I mean, you've mentioned Klarna, mm-hmm. which is from Sweden. And uh, unsurprisingly, Sweden is the world's leader in terms of BNPL with a market share of close to 20%. Uh, generally speaking, BNPL is not a very sophisticated business. Barriers to entry are very, very low, especially for established technology or financial services companies. So as of today, more than 200 companies offer BNPL-like solutions, including Apple and also PayPal, for example. And rather than becoming a business of its own, um, we think it's rather shaping up as a significant opportunity in the world of embedded finance, especially for large and well-funded players. Mm -hmm. And how do they make money? Uh, well, basically, it's about a processing fee or discount fee, which is deducted from um, the uh, the sticker price. Mm-hmm. It's around two percent to eight percent. Plus, if there's overdraft, you pay extra, etc. So, at the end of the day, um, these are quite fair margins.
1: Now. If we flip from delaying payments to doing payments straight away, uh, real-time payments are also worth mentioning here. Indeed. Um, So I know that they were first developed in Japan back in the 70s, so 1970, but real-time payment systems have only recently started to grow, say, in the past decade or so. Can you tell a little bit um, more about that impact?
2: Mm -hmm. Um, I think real-time payments or RTPs are an interesting development in the sense of how payment speeds have developed over time. So when I started in banking, a domestic transfer would take something like three business days, mainly because of all the manual work that was involved. So including the collection of the transfer slips, uh, the transportation to the bank's processing center and subsequent bookings. Over time, this was then shortened to one business day i.e., overnight. And now uh, it's intraday. And I think this slowness that we had like back a couple of years ago can create significant uncertainty especially for people struggling to make ends meet or for small business owners who rely on receiving payments promptly to support their cash flows the introduction of real-time payments is said to overcome this as payments will be initiated cleared and settled within seconds at any time of the day or week holidays and uh, weekends included and to a certain extent rtps are I would say a reflection of today's fast paced world and the technical capabilities which have expanded massively during the past 15 to 20 years. What's interesting about RTPs is that the developed world is not in the lead. European countries and the US are in fact uh, trailing behind because they have relied for very long on their established and sometimes outdated payment infrastructure. Today's real-time payment leaders can be found in countries such as India, Nigeria, or Thailand, where two out of three transactions are done in real-time. Most European countries and the US, in contrast, are at one out of ten, which I think is quite remarkable.
1: Yeah, that really is. I, mean, I guess we all have to keep an eye to these other countries to see mm-hmm. where, where the innovation is coming from. Now, we're just about to run out of time, um, but before we go... I'd like to ask you to quickly sum up where we see the future of finance. Are we looking at revolution or evolution?
2: As of now, I think the future of finance is much more evolutionary than uh, revolutionary. And the main reason, I think, is the element of trust, which is instrumental to most financial interactions, especially with regards to banking. No matter if it's your current account where you receive your salary or your investment account where you save for retirement, you need trust in the institution you are working with. And trust is often related to tradition. We know that. Banks, which have been around for hundred years or more, enjoy a lot of trust from their clients, with Julius Baer being case in point. Newcomers thus have a very tough time. Simply speaking, they need to be much better in terms of the products and services they are providing in order to gain the trust of their clients. On the payment side, I think it's a bit different while there are also some very established players so the ones whose logo is on our credit cards for example uh, this is much less less about trust which is a soft factor but rather about technological leadership a hard factor don't get me wrong i think these card companies enjoy a lot of trust but they are likewise technological leaders this makes them so dominant and so difficult to disrupt that said Along the payments value chain, we've seen a number of newcomers emerging in the past few years, providing new and innovative products and services.
1: Thank you very much for joining us today, Carsten. And thank you to everyone for listening at home. Please do make sure to subscribe to Julius Baer Beyond Markets podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you like to listen. Until next time, thank you very much and goodbye from us here in the studio.
0: You have been listening to Beyond Markets by Julius Baer. If you like what you've heard, please tell us by leaving a review and rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Subscribe to Beyond Markets on your favorite podcast player to stay up to date with our latest episodes. To learn more about Julius Baer, our people, our latest thinking, visit us at www.juliusbaer.com. We will be back with a brand new episode soon. The information and opinions expressed in this podcast constitute marketing material and are not the result of independent financial or investment research. Please refer to www.juliusbear.com legal podcast for further important legal information.